0: Hey, so uh, this is Andrew Jenks, uh, host and writer of What Really Happened, and I'm not trying to impress anyone out there, but I don't know if you guys know this about me. I am, um, technically speaking, a doctor. This is true. I am a doctor. I dropped out of college, but somehow I'm a doctor. Now, in transparency, this is really only because I got an honorary doctorate after giving the uh, commencement speech at Quinnipiac University. But if I were a real sob, I I could I could go. I technically speaking, I could go by Dr. Jenks. I could go on a jo- I could go on a job interview and put on my resume uh, that you know I'm identified as such. I am Dr. Jenks. I could go on a plane. I've thought about this sometimes. Um, I don't do drugs, but uh, if I did, I I kind of have thought about this idea of going on a plane, and if. Some of them passed out and said, we need a doctor. I could raise my hand and say, there is a doctor on board. Um, Really cracking myself up here. Uh, So luckily, thanks to people like uh, the fine folks at ZipRecruiter, this type of thing would never pass. If you're currently hiring, there really isn't a better place to find the right people than ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applicants you receive. So you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. And this is where it gets special for just our listeners. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H, as in what really happened. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H, ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So uh, this week's shout out goes to Cadence 13's John McDermott, who taught me how to make ads Uh, How to really just make ads work on podcasts. This podcast is produced, by the way, by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Goertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. Be sure to subscribe to What Really Happened on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. So we had a really special episode last week about the trial of Daniel Green, a 43-year-old man who was convicted of murder 25 years ago. Imprisoned when he was only 18 years old, Uh, actually imprisoned for two years before that for something else that he didn't do. Uh, You can find that episode by subscribing to the show. It's titled Special Episode The Trial of Daniel Green. Uh, As a reminder, you know, Daniel's freedom is apparent, at least to me. I think the facts show that. Sometimes it gets, his story has gotten lost because. Of the headlines that surround it and point out that the murder he was convicted of is that of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan. And many have wrongfully, wrongfully tied Michael into some nasty conspiracy theories, which we certainly, I certainly dismiss. Uh, I really just appreciate, suggest listening to that episode as it opened my eyes, opened my eyes that even in a case that was closely monitored, that, you know, officials got away with fabricating evidence. They uh, threatened innocent people and, and much, much more. There's an alibi that shows Daniel was somewhere else. There's no DNA evidence. There's no physical evidence. There's only one person who says Daniel did it. And this man, uh, Larry Demery, has actually told people that he was the one that committed the murder. So how did you know this all happen? Check out that episode. I, I really want to thank our listeners who on social media have reached out to me at, at Andrew Jenks on Twitter, Instagram, etc., and also, I want to say, uh, I've spoken, I've been speaking with Daniel pretty much every day, and I know he really appreciates everyone's support, as as does his lawyer, Chris Muma, his entire family. Uh, I won't get into the weeds on it. Maybe we'll have a reaction episode at some point, but, uh, you know, when he, it's cool when you get to do something good, and, uh, you know, it's something I won't forget, just talking to him in the days after that aired, and I think hopefully... Uh, With your support, your help, uh, we can move the needle on that case. So with that said, this is the reaction episode to Black Dog, our episode on Winston Churchill and his mental health. I'll be speaking with Winston Churchill, biographer, and New York Times bestselling author, Paul Reed. He wrote the amazing third installment of perhaps the best book on Churchill, at least it's up there. Uh, In researching the topic, I read all, all 3,008 pages of the book. Although I was told on Twitter it's on Amazon and you can listen to it, and that only takes 53 hours and 27 minutes, so we can do that. We have a few lighter moments in my conversation with Paul Reed. Uh, As it turns out, there's a lot of quotes attributed to Winston Churchill that are, wait for it, fake. If you go online, you'll see these epic quotes from Winston Churchill And many of them are on Twitter. Many of them, by the way, I've taken screenshots of or jotted down through the years because I found them so inspirational. However, they aren't actually his. Um, So through the years, people have just assumed that he said them. Obviously, assumptions are dangerous. Um, And so last quick item before we get to these interviews, you know, this episode came out on Thanksgiving weekend, which I uh, learned isn't really the best time to put out a podcast. So listen to Black Dog, our original episode before listening to this. A lot of you have uh, kindly followed me on Twitter uh, and Instagram or Facebook where it's at Andrew Jenks Official, not because I need to be Andrew Jenks Official, just because there was another Andrew Jenks out there. So um, I don't know. Maybe I I don't know if there's a way to change that. I probably hate Andrew Jenks Official is ridiculous. Anyway, uh, many of you have asked me about the movie I made, Black Dog, which I talk about in the podcast episode. That is a hybrid movie that I made. Um, I'm also in it. Don't judge. It tells the story of of a character like myself who at 30 years old starts to finally open up to friends and family about struggles, my struggles with uh, the misunderstood condition that is depression. Uh, I made the movie, gosh, I think now upwards of two years ago, and no festivals, (laughs) no distributors have liked it enough to play it or buy it. I was told, um, I, I told all of you that I was waiting to see if it was going to get into the Tribeca Film Festival. I've uh, had several, I've been very lucky that several films in the past that I've, I've directed have played there. And guess what? It didn't get in. Uh, I love, love everyone top to bottom that works at Tribeca. I really do. So let's be clear the film uh, just didn't fit into their program this year for whatever reason. Uh, you honestly can't take this stuff personal. I'll be going regardless. Uh, But that does leave my movie about my depression out there. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, different production companies have all passed. But Churchill, let's tie this back in, baby. Churchill was considered a failed politician. Let's remember that. Until he took over as prime minister to save the Western world from Nazis, from Hitler. He was considered a loser. And now he's considered a hero, a monumental figure in history, perhaps, perhaps the most important person in the 21st century. So with that inspiration in mind, I sure as heck am not going to give up on my little 73-minute movie. I have made movies that suck, trust me. I'm self-aware enough to know when uh, my stuff stinks. And this, I really don't think, is one of them. I'm I'm proud of it. So I'll continue the fight and update you on social media on that front. Now, uh, before getting started, a quick response to these recent allegations that Churchill cheated on his wife. I don't know if you've seen these, but uh, my response is not very complicated. I haven't uh, taken time to look into it. In fact, because I checked in with the experts. Well, I guess I did look into it in that sense. I went straight to the sources, Paul Reed, who we'll be speaking with shortly, and Sonia Purnell, the biographer of Winston Churchill's uh, wife, Clementine Churchill. And it's clear... When speaking with those two who have read every journal entry, every recording, thousands of documents that these roamers are bogus. All right, so we're going to start off by speaking with Mr. Paul Reed, who informed me that so many of these quotes out there are uh, fake. It's kind of goes to this larger point, I think. Uh, I don't know, I'm curious what you all think in terms of just today's world. There is so much information that we can now find and really be convinced of anything, uh, even if it's not true. It happens to me often. The kind of beautiful side of that is that we can check our sources. We can check, recheck, double-check the information that is also out there. So it's kind of a net positive. It just requires more time, which is, I guess, cool of me because I have no personal life. And so now my interview with Paul Reed, again, the author of The Last Lion, Winston Spencer Churchill, Volume 3, Defender of the Realm, 1940 to 1965. I was wondering, can we play a quick game of which quotes are, are correctly attributed to Churchill and which are not?
1: Absolutely. I'm going to be doing it without my reference book written by the great Richard Langworth, but uh, I'll take my best shot. All
0: right, let's take a shot. Um,
1: and, and your people listening, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if they go on Twitter, uh-huh. Google Churchill, you'll get... 50 people, well, 20, whose <laughs> hobby is quoting Churchill. And then they're followed by famous people like congressmen and senators, and they, they retweet the tweet and retweet that, and they favorite it. And I'm going to say almost half of them are not, were not said by Churchill.
0: It's incredible. All right, so we'll play the game. Um, if you have enemies, that's good. It means you've stood up for something in your life.
1: That has been debunked. By the great Richard Lingworth and other people, and uh, no, he didn't say that.
0: Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, so I'm going to need you to to help me finish it. Um, a uh, 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 a rumor will get so far. What was it? It's a rumor will get so, uh, halfway around the world before it's before it's stopped. Checked.
1: <laughs> uh, well, the one usually attributed is along the lines of a lie will be halfway around the world. Uh, before it gets its pants on.
0: And that's Churchill, yeah. right?
1: Uh, but no, he didn't oh. say that. <laughs> In fact, uh, it's attributed to Cordell Hull, Roosevelt's Secretary of State, a very taciturn Tennessean. And uh, it sounds so much like Churchill and so unlike Hull, but apparently Hull said it. <laughs> and there's, uh, oh, there's one one of the most famous that the English Navy, Churchill said, is nothing but rum, sodomy, and the lash. I mean, I heard that one when I was a kid. And years later, over dinner, when he was still alive, someone said, that's one of my favorite quotes, sir. And he said, I wish I had said it.
0: But I didn't. (laughs) Even that one. Um, Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference.
1: I didn't say it that (laughs) I know of. Pretty sure.
0: I may be drunk, miss, but in the morning I'll be sober and you'll still be ugly.
1: Didn't say it. Really? And they have him saying that to various people, including uh, Nancy Astor, who was an American but moved to England, and she was a political enemy of Churchill's. And uh, she was elected to Parliament. And usually she's the the one he's saying that to. Well, uh, unless his vision was occluded... She was pretty good looking.
0: <laughs> um, I didn't say it to anybody. Uh, let's see here. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Nah, didn't
1: say it. <laughs> These are the most popular ones on Twitter, too, you'll find.
0: I know, that's I am. Uh, To improve is to change, to be perfect is to change often.
1: That sounds like him. Uh-huh. See, I'm not sure, but... Because uh, he did flip parties twice. Uh, in England, it's called ratting. If you go from the uh-huh. one political party and join another, you've ratted. And he was very proud of not only ratting, but <laughs> 10 years later, he re-ratted <laughs> his expression. All of the ones you've read have a sort of a Churchillian ring to them, mm-hmm. even though based on my research um, and Richard Langworth's groundbreaking research, I know some of them he did not say.
0: Are there any others that you see come up a lot that you just shake your head at? Well, mo- some of the ones you
1: just said are the most common, yeah. uh, okay. including if you're going through hell, keep going. Mm-hmm. Oh, this one, this one kills me. Um, in 1941, he told the little boys at Harrow, that. Eight, ten, twelve year old boys. This is in the middle of the end of the Battle of Britain and the Blitz and bombs falling and their parents dying. That uh, this is where he said, and I'm not going to do the whole quote here, but mm-hmm. he told them never give in, never, never, never give in uh, to anything but honorable and virtuous impulses, uh, to, to never dishonor themselves, never give in. And I ended my author's note with a abbreviated version of that. On Twitter you will find most of the people who cite that cite it as never give up. Yes. And <laughs> you'll see memes and illustrations and and I, I I did give up trying to get some people to understand that not only didn't he say that, he would never say it under any circumstances because <laughs> up ends with a sort of soft sound, and every word he ever wrote or spoke, he chose, and he worked on, and he practiced it over dinner. So never give in ends on that hard consonant, Uh. and it's powerful. But never give up sounds, uh, you know, eh, and... You know, I've, I've given up trying to convince people of that because <laughs> they look at me as if I'm a mental case.
0: <laughs> I'm, look, yeah, I'm looking at a, I'm, I'm looking at my screen right now and it's a beautiful sunset photo and, and it says never, never, never give up Winston Churchill. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, all right. I, um, if you don't mind, I really, really appreciate your time here. Um, this is this has been, uh, this has been incredible. Um, I a uh, last quote uh, I wanted to ask you about. I'm fond of pigs. Dogs look up to us. Cats look down on us. Pigs treat us as equals.
1: Oh, boy. See, the <laughs> answers are going to be in Richard Lingworth's book. Which okay. Which no, I, could, I wasn't I sure if that one you knew and, off the top of your head. It and then really impress you. But <laughs> right. um,
0: No, that's okay. I wanted to – I just – That's
1: right up yeah. his alley. To right. Because he, right. he loved his little animals and his, right. his ducks and – uh clementine served a goose one evening at dinner and and handed him the carving knife and he he almost cried he said i can't do that he was a friend of mine (laughs) so those are his sentiments and and he was sentimental uh in in a healthy way hitler was sentimental too in a pathetic way
0: right do you have any idea why churchill's been misquoted so often like, there doesn't seem to be any alter- alternative motivation to be misquoting him.
1: I I think almost all of the quotes, misquotes included, are from people who really are inspired by the words. Mm. And whether they came from Churchill or not, they, they probably lean towards liking Churchill. And so it fits, and they tweet it or they use it. Um, and you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. He never said it, but yeah. I mean, that's a nice message to get you through the day. <laughs>
0: um, but no, no, I mean, maybe it's just that Churchill's, you know, arguably more bio- bi- biographed if, if then the, there are more biographies and art, uh, books about him than anyone else. So maybe when there's a lot about you, there's a lot of quotes that are, that are come from you, and a lot of those quotes aren't accurate, or something? Maybe it's just that the, the there's so much content.
1: Well, yeah, I think uh, someone I read something like 1,700 published books on Churchill, and I mean he was a character, he was a wit. Mm. So if if all of these quotes were attributed to uh, oh Cordell Hull or you know richard nixon they they wouldn't ring true <laughs> um, right fair you know but, but old churchill came out with so many actual zingers in his speeches and over the radio mm. uh and and so many of his quotes uh, the the accurate ones are in that genre of mm. if you're going through hell keep going he uh, there's one he actually said about if you throw sticks and rocks at every dog that barks at you, you'll never reach the end of your journey. And when I first saw that somewhere, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, now they've really gone overboard with Winston. But he said that one. Oh, there was I, I read another one yesterday, and I think Orwell, nobody knows who really said this. It might have been someone from the BBC, which could have been Orwell or uh, some other people. But it's always attributed to Churchill, mm. To the effect that uh, as we sleep, we know that there are rough men out there willing to visit justice on those who would do us evil. And you'll see that all over the place. Uh, he didn't say it, but it sure... I bet he wished he had said it.
0: Right. So... I was talking to a friend the other day and he seemed a little stressed out, a little stressed out. And, um, I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm walking circles in my kitchen. I'm like walking around in circles. And I said, why are you doing that? And he was like, you know what, for, you know what, this is stupid, forget it. And I heard like a slam of some sort, uh, on the floor and I was like, what, what are you doing? and he said i've gotten so obsessed with my watch that counts how many steps i take i just realized i'm i'm standing here in the at night in my kitchen trying to get to the number of steps that you know the goal uh, of the number of steps i, I want to get each day and that's what the, that's what my life that's what my life has come to and i said why don't i said what whatever happened and listen i'm cool you have a watch that gets emails and texts and and tells you different things you know, whatever's clever. Everyone has different things that work, but it clearly wasn't working for him. So I was like, why don't you just <laughs> get a normal watch? Um, you know, like a watch that tells time, which is what I have. It's a, uh, it's a movement watch and movement watches start at 95 bucks, which I think all things considered, like I've seen watches that are equally nice and they're usually like four or 500 bucks. Um, and Movement figured out that by selling online, they were really able to cut out uh, a lot of the, I guess, middle. I don't know, middle men, middle women um, out there, and so they really do give you like a classic design, Um, and it's kind of like it's minimal minimalism, minimalistic. And so, with that said, um, right now, today, you get fifteen percent off with free shipping and free returns by going to. MVMT.com slash WRH. You can see why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to MVMT.com slash WRH. Join the movement. I got one for my mom. She loves it. I love you, mom. Moving on to the show. So, my conversation with Paul Reed will continue, but I uh, I wanted to get to some really interesting and personal feedback uh, from the Winston Churchill episode "Black Dog" on on which really focused on his mental health. It came from a variety of people all over the all over the world, really. And I want to start with a conversation I had with a listener, uh, Jamie from South Carolina, who was incredibly brave and just really kind. Happened to be a big fan of Chad from my old MTV show, um, who doesn't love Chad. Uh, And she really opens up, and I just enjoyed this this conversation. Hey, Jamie, how are you?
2: Good, how are you?
0: Good. Um, What I really appreciated uh, in your feedback on Twitter, you said, I listened to the podcast three times today because I couldn't bring myself to the same conclusion. That was more or less reached in the podcast Uh, and you go on to explain, uh, what you mean by that essentially. And rather than me explaining it, uh, I thought you were very articulate in, in explaining why you came to this uh, conclusion and was hoping you'd be able to do that, uh, for us now.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess the main, I had two main, I don't want to say issues, but, um, I guess things that came up for me was one you sort of implied that the depression that you were looking at was quote unquote, chronic depression. Mm -hmm. And I guess I have a chronic form of depression. Um, I've been struggling with depression since I was early teens, maybe before then, um, so and like I'm 27 now, so most of my life has been that. Mm. Um, and so, I guess the the whole concept of chronic depression is not just that two week diagnostic time frame that sort of everybody mentioned in that particular podcast, um, because. Diagnostically speaking, that two week timeframe is for major depressive disorder. What um what it is to be chronically depressed
3: mm-hmm.
2: um or to have persistent depressive disorder or dysthemia, um, which is like the milder, quote unquote milder form of depression. Um, the diagnostic time frame for that is actually two years. Mm-hmm. Um And so, for me, it was kind of like, well, no, he may not have had two weeks of debilitating, crippling depression, but especially with his alcohol use, um, you know, it could have definitely have been something that was long-term and may not have been so severe where he was not functioning um and so really it was just sort of the the vocabulary and then also the um the implications that came from it
0: yeah uh well first thank you for opening up about uh, talking about your own depression as i know there's a, a stigma attached to it and Uh, It sounds like what you're referring to, and I agree with a a lot of what you're saying, I think, is uh, the DSM 5. Or is that accurate? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, trying to diagnose or not diagnose a historical figure, you know, when a psychiatrist uh, has not met with them is already, uh, you know, in a difficult place. And it's funny. I'm really glad that you brought this up because we have an interview that I did with this uh, really well-known uh, psychiatrist uh, named Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, and we uh, speak at length about what you're talking about. And a lot of is a lot of it surrounds. Okay, the language that we're using to talk about depression seems. Like there's a lot of work to do, and um, there's a difference between dysthymia and uh, depression and chronic depression, and uh, I think. So I think you're spot on. I I I think I'm I'm just go, thinking out loud of everything you you've just said, and um, I think the real. For me, the 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 next step in everything in terms of a a larger picture, and I don't know what you think of this, but is really applying a proper trying to find the right words to articulate all of this. I only learned of dysthymia, which is what I feel like I have and I've thought a lot about if there. you know, if I were to find a word, it would be that word, uh, which I think is is probably similar to, uh, you tell me, probably similar to chronic depression where I, or maybe not, uh, but I, I have it all the time. I always feel it. It's almost like a, a melancholy that's always there. And I, every, you know, some days I do a better job of man. It's a constant management.
2: Right. And it's funny because around the same time my sister in law who's getting her degree in social work, she did a report, and I had to give her health information about myself, and I had to talk to my therapist about it because I kind of felt like me telling her that I had depression, even though I am i guess quote unquote high functioning
3: mm-hmm.
2: um meaning like I can go to work, I can hang out with my friends um you know I can do my responsibilities, um, that, you know, because I'm able to do these things, me saying that I have depression, I kind of felt like a fraud, um, in a way because it was, I guess maybe this like stigma that I had within myself, um, you know, the whole, there's no reason to be depressed, you know, all those kinds of things. That's why you Um,
0: felt like a fraud because there wasn't kind of a tangible reason
2: and because it's like, I've always, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. Um, I guess I, even though I had, um, mental health issues for so long, I did not get any sort of mental health care until I went to college. Um, Mm -hmm. like my third year in right and it was kind of because oh well I'm managing it I'm you know like I'm fine I don't really need help because I wasn't I guess in my mind I was not what you would think of when you I guess typically think of a depressed person Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
2: I wasn't in bed you know I was still able to go do things I was you know, making good grades. I was, you know, I was,
0: you were able to manage um, it to some extent. It sounds like.
2: Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, as I got older and I learned more about myself and more about the depression, um, and you know, I did have some very bad episodes, um, in college, but, and so those were kind of like, okay, well, you know, depression is depression. Mm. Um, it's, regardless of how severe it is, Hmm. you still need to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You still need to take care of yourself. Um, And so, you know, I ultimately did that. But with my therapist now, um, you know, we, we sat down and we looked at what the different types of depression are and what each of those meant um and so it's just like we sat down with the dsm-5 and sort of like looked at each thing and the thing about it is it's kind of vague (laughs) um yeah i couldn't agree more on that one yeah and so it's like you know it's almost this or mostly these things right you know it's kind of it's not black and white um and so people can fit into these types of depressions but then they may not but they still may have depressive symptoms so it's just yeah it's i don't know it's um
0: we don't know the brain as well as we know the leg so i feel like we're exactly. able to diagnose a leg a broken leg easier than something like depression where they're just the research isn't there. And thus something like DSM five, it's maybe it's the best that can be done to this point, but it's, it's, uh, and it, it, it has the right intentions, but, uh, I know in my, as I've come to understand it more and more, it just seems to not, uh, it, it doesn't seem to, it seems like it needs a, a serious reworking, <laughs> Um, and I say Um, that with the caveat that I am not, I don't know what field you're in, but I say that from just someone who experiences depression and it sounds like you as well. I don't, I don't know if you're, uh, do you mind me asking actually, what field are you in?
2: Um, I actually work, um, in the the school district, um, here, so I'm not like in the classroom, but I work with, um, homeless families within our district.
0: Oh, good for you. Wow. Okay.
2: Um, So, and so, I mean, like, I see a lot of mental illness with the people that I work with as well. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, we may refer them to talk with a counselor or see, you know, counseling within the community. um, And they're like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Because basically because of the stigma that there is about Mm -hmm. mental illness. Mm-hmm. And seeing the therapist is like, oh, they're crazy, you know? Right. So, right.
0: it's a sign of weakness to 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 exactly. so many. Exactly,
2: um, and especially within like the minority community,
0: right? Um,
2: like, I, I'm, I'm, I am black, and so within my family, it was sort of. You know, when my mom found out that I had depression, it was, well, you know, have you tried praying harder, that kind of thing, Um, and then my dad was like, you don't have anything to be depressed about, so it's just, it's not understood within certain circles, and it's not understood on a, I guess, a wider scale, you know, like socially,
0: Uh, obviously because we've communicated via Twitter and on the phone here, I, I didn't know that, uh, you were a minority. What would, um, what would your advice be to, to other particularly, you know, young people, teens, people in their twenties, uh, in terms of how you overcame what I really can't imagine, frankly, uh, you know, coming out to family members, about your own struggles?
2: Um, I guess I would just have to say you have to do what's best for you. Um, you know, my parents are older, um, like my parents are in their 60s and 70s now. So they were older when I was born. Um, so they kind of have this old school mentality of You know mental illness um but i had to learn that like i said before i have to put my i guess my health first um Mm -hmm. i really can't worry about what other people will have to think otherwise it could be dangerous for me um and unfortunately I did have to kind of hit rock bottom to go to counseling the Mm. first time. Mm. Um, and, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, you know, it should be something that people can talk about. Yeah. Um, kind of like how, you know, people can talk about physical illnesses. Um, and you know have that sort of support system from people around them. Um, you know, fortunately, I have friends who have, may have you know struggled with mental illness or they're you know open-minded and understanding about it. Um, so in that way, I do have a support system. But it's it's kind of different when your family.
0: Mm, yeah, of course. Kind of, um, how about your? Did you? It, I know. Did your? Did you have? Was it difficult because of fr- uh with friends? Uh, were you? Have you opened up to them? How how difficult was that at first?
2: Um,
0: if you're if you're if you're open to talking about that, I should well, say. Well,
2: no, I I am. I'm just. It's it's kind of weird because. I feel like we all kind of found each other. Um, And I've I've always had this like concept of like broken people find broken people Hmm. Um, because it's just maybe they recognize themselves in another person and they know the need for support, like mutual support within that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, but I... You know, I I, I struggled with, with self-harm for a really long time, and I had a few friends that I was able to trust with with that, um, and one of them actually convinced me to um, seek out counseling for the first time, and, um, you know, another one sort of gave me um, information about, you know, different organizations. Um that deal with depression. And, um, and so as I guess also, as I got older, I became more comfortable with the idea of talking about it because I knew it was something that it, I guess that needed to be talked about.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, Well, thank you very much, Jamie. This is, this has been great uh if is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I feel like we got quite a bit there, um, and it was great
2: um, I don't think so I just I hope you didn't think it came off kind of like not just what's but, that? Um, I said I hope it didn't come off with of not just with that tweet, like the original tweet. Oh no, I was, I was like, oh my gosh. I just ripped
0: apart this poor man no no not at all no we i mean that's why i mean we're, you know it's like what really happened according to me so um
3: yeah.
0: as many people that uh want to you know provide more insight um uh then and it wasn't like you were like man this asshole thinks that he can fucking blah. you know it was uh it was it was really precise and and thoughtful so I i really appreciate it so again, I really want to thank Jamie for calling in, talking to me about this. It really means something uh, something special when we, when people call in or leave a, a message. Uh, you can do that through jenkspod.com for episodes that will be coming out in season two. That is why we really do these reaction episodes in the first place. And so I just want to thank her and, and everyone else who has left messages, um, but haven't maybe been on a specific episode. Right now, we're going to go back to my conversation with Paul Reed, who I clearly get a total kick out of, um, and he's also a brilliant guy, which helps. I talk to him a little bit more and uh, challenge him on some of the reactions I got from you guys that uh, had some uh, very reasonable issues with uh, some of Churchill's mistakes that I think Paul Reed sort of um, pushes back a little bit on. There, there's no room on Twitter for much nuance, much less citations, etc. Um, and yeah, Reed, you had you had brought that up uh, in our conversation. Also on also on Twitter is uh, the feedback that I got was there's a lot to be said for Churchill, certainly, and then a couple of people who listen to the show said that they would never be able to respect Churchill because of how he approached the Bengali famine, saying that, um, that they think at least 3 million people, uh, died and <clears throat> they, they, they think that Churchill is responsible because there was something like 170,000 tons of, Australian wheat that was bypassing India and going into storage for uh, a stockpile of sorts to feed uh, European civilians once they were liberated. What do you make of that charge?
1: Well, there's uh, one of the organizations I found on Twitter is a a British uh, activist organization, and I'm scrolling down looking for it right now, but what they said earlier in the day, their number was 4.2 million people, okay. and they mention uh, the bypassing of, of uh, wheat. They didn't specify Australian, yeah, in order to do just what you said, feed Europeans when they're liberated. And uh, oh, and that, and then they have a quote from Churchill. I, I can't find it anywhere to the effect that the indians are a foul race and they breed like rabbits so the famine won't hurt them much well
0: yeah i've seen that quote everywhere
1: okay i i can't find it and now this is interesting in the sense that churchill did say some pretty nasty things about all sorts of races and people mm-hmm. and breeding like rabbits that was one of his expressions that he would apply to anyone, uh, but to, uh, he once asked his doctor if blacks got measles, because how do, how do they know they have measles? And his doctor said, well, Winston, yes, and in um, and, and sub-Saharan Africa, they don't do well without modern medicine, and Churchill did come back with something to the effect that, well, that's all right, they breed. So... You know, you wince at that eighty, ninety, a hundred years after he may have said some of these things, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you don't want to be uh, generationally chauvinistic. Mm-hmm. He was a pro- he was fully formed and in the military in the nineteenth century. Uh, so, but what this organization did in out of England was mush together a bunch of quotes and misquotes and Offer that as uh, sustaining the argument that he engineered the famine. Uh, the in, in my book, um, the last lion. I, I, I knew this would come up. I didn't have time to do a, a huge subchapter on it, but I did find telegrams from Churchill to Roosevelt and the answers from Roosevelt to Churchill, where Churchill was asking for American ships to ship. 370,000 tons of Australian wheat to Bengal. And this was in 44, early 44. And Roosevelt replied that we need all the ships we have in order to liberate Europe. Uh, But Churchill specifically mentioned the, the terrible famine and can we do something to get this wheat to Bengal? And not that Roosevelt was being an... You know, anti-Indian, or he had his priorities, and that wasn't it. And Churchill had no say in the matter. Uh, So, another thing that interested me: the there were 600 British civil servants in India during the war. That India or Kenya, uh, they weren't 18th century-style colonies. This was a partnership. There were one hundred one million Indian soldiers under arms in India, and they outnumbered the, the British presence 20 to 1, so that India could have gone its own way in, in a week. But it was part of this partnership, Churchill would call it. It, it wasn't as if the English boot was on the Indian neck. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, India... We're all part of you know, uh, the empire, and someone said in the eighteenth century, the empire looked like an octopus with you know the body being England mm-hmm. and by the middle of the twentieth century, it looked like a school of fish mm. and I, I think that captures the essence of it so and the Indian government also built. At the going rate for all services rendered during the war, and L- London had to pay it for feeding British troops or for fuel, and uh, the, the bills came due. It's Canada did the same thing, and so did America with lend-lease because it was not lend-give. Uh, the British owed us three billion dollars at the end of the war, hmm. so. Revolving back to the famine, uh, there's just nothing out there that had the smoking gun of Churchill in the cabinet saying, let's starve the Indians.
0: Right. What What about the idea that this was going on and he he simply just could have done—he could have done— more, or he could have not stockpiled these, uh, 170,000 tons of wheat and brought them to India. Is that a, is that a charge that, um, you see, you know, it's, I'm not it, like, in other words, it's not as if yet, yeah, right. Churchill didn't perhaps set a meeting to, to, uh, to make sure that. They all, they all starved, but was he short-sighted and not see, seeing ways in which they could help?
1: I, I don't think so. Uh, shipping was the, the great problem for the Allies in the war. It's also why Hitler was never going to invade England by sea because he didn't have enough ships to put his men on. Mm. And so, so I guess the question now is, okay, if he didn't engineer it, mm-hmm. Was he guilty of uh, lack of intervention for whatever reason? um, Malfeasance, misfeasance? And again, I I think the answer is no, because India, in the 50 years that uh, Burma had been part of uh, the empire, it was Churchill's father who presented Burma to Queen Victoria as a New Year's gift in 1888, I think. Mm. Uh, in those 50 years, there had never been a famine in India because Burma's surplus rice and, and the, the Burmese rice bowl was was the center of the world. I mean, the Burmese helped feed China and India. And when the Japanese came in after those 50 years with Naria famine, that's what started the famine. The Japanese... Removed, stole, not only the surplus rice. I mean, now the mm. Burmese were starving, mm. and you just don't hear that on this uh, during this presentation of the canard that you know 4.2 million or 3 million. The number is always changing. Mm-hmm. Died because of Churchill, whether it's on his watch or or whether he was actually malevolent enough to engineer it. And the fact is, uh, the the Japanese took the rice back to uh, Tokyo wow. Burmese rice, and there was nothing the British could do I mean the British Navy, the American Navy for the first twelve months of the war were pretty much wiped out of the pacific
0: where does do you know has that famine I was rereading the parts of your book in which you you bring this up um, as it pertains to the famine is 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 there a particular person or organization that has uh Sort of brought this this point of view up consistently, seeing as it does seem to have
1: uh... Uh, brought up the Churchill at fault mm. well, well, I think a lot of people have, and um, I, I, it's funny an hour ago I was looking at this organization out of England with twenty thousand Twitter followers, and um, now I can 't find them, but uh, yeah, there are organizations like that, and mm-hmm. you know, just as there are about gunmen on the grassy knoll in Dallas, and and they seem to either cherry pick or invent quotes and sources, and uh, you know, they're out there. I'm not surprised you got those phone calls in reaction to your Churchill show because uh, there we go. Uh, every any article about Churchill. Anywhere, if there are comments sections available, you're going to get
0: that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and then speaking of his views on race, which uh, it, you know, I'll 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 provide a specific quote that he said, but I think I'm going to agree. Uh, I have a hunch I'm going to agree with you in that it reminds me of I think Teddy Roosevelt. You know, didn't think African-Americans would, I forget what the quote was, but they wouldn't catch up for with like the white race for 400 years or something Um, and just clearly thought they were a lesser, a lesser race. I think um, Churchill in 37 told, uh, I believe the Palestine Royal Commission Quote, I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more widely wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place.
1: He said that in very similar things. Uh, at the White House one day, Roosevelt provoked him. Roosevelt liked to laugh at other people's expense, mm-hmm. and he had, I think, Mrs. Ogden Reed, the publisher of what the Herald, New York Herald Tribune, there, and she was an uh, powerful anti-imperialist, and and Roosevelt said, uh, "Winston, what are you going to do about the Indians?" and And he said, are you asking me about the red Indians of America that you have made almost extinct, or the brown Indians of India, who we have brought into the 20th century? So, Mm. in in, 70, 80 years later, again, certainly he was a a man of his time, and, and he wince at certain things like that. But... The the British never had a policy like we had in the on the Great Plains um, in India. They, it would have been a losing proposition. They were outnumbered, you know, a million to one. Uh, whereas our Indians were outnumbered a million to one. So you, you know, these things. Yeah, Churchill said these things, but he believed in this partnership, where in time. Uh, India, Kenya, uh, you know, would go their own way, still in a voluntary partnership, and it was all voluntary, really, with Great Britain and the Commonwealth evolved from the colonial era, and Australia and New Zealand, Canada, uh, South Africa at the, during the war. Uh, this was—they didn't have to fight for England. Nobody ordered them to, and nobody could order them to. And that included India, and the, the Indian Army of one million was one hundred percent volunteer army. So that's.
0: Are you, um, are you uh, friends, or do you think it's it's, is it harder for white males to? Conclude on things like Churchill's racism. Uh, would it be better off uh, or be more substantial coming from a a minority historian?
1: I don't think so. Uh, if you've got your facts right, and Churchill had a lot of zingers about facts, you know they they follow you around and mm. they are what they are. And uh, if you've got your sources and your facts and it's all credible. Uh, then you can conclude it's colorblind. So you don't have to be a minority historian to say Churchill uh, had what we would now call racist tendencies, and he was quick to take a jab at—he called all black Africans hottentots, which hottentot at one point was a neutral word for people, I think, in the Angola region— but it became a, a nasty pejorative and so i wince when i see him doing that but mm-hmm. and i'm not forgiving him i'm just explaining him by saying this guy was born in 1874 yes. and um uh, you know i if if you had three historians behind uh, closed doors and the audience couldn't see them and they were all given the facts uh and if they all didn't bring an ax to grind one way or another, then they'd all step out black Indian and white American and say, yeah, he was a racist.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how did, uh, so veering off just a little bit, um, how I, I had, I was just looking through the transcript of, of our conversation, uh, yesterday I was reading through it and you had done such a great job, which I'm, trying to sort out a way to include, of explaining Churchill's speech uh, about Dunkirk. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the
1: seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. And in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender.
0: You you were talking about how, you know, they were fleeing, they were losing the war, it was looking bad, and he gives a speech about triumph and how they're winning.
1: Well, um, I've not used the word victory. I mean, I don't have his speeches in front of me. He told Parliament that it was heroic and that the Navy... Stepped up. Uh, the The myth since then is that ten thousand yachtsmen stepped up. Well, many did, but the navy, the yachtsmen, the fishermen. Uh, so he described it as heroic. He said the men are home, but they had to leave their luggage behind, their tanks and cannons and rifles, and uh, and and then he said it's, it's a day of Thanksgiving, and I'm partially para- uh, paraphrasing here, mm-hmm. but victories, it's a miraculous evacuation, but victories are not won by evacuations and retreat. So mm. he, uh, later it could be seen as a, a, a strategic mistake by the Germans, and, and there's two sides of that story, uh, that it was, quote unquote, a victory victory. But at the time, he saw it as deliverance from absolute crushing defeat. Lucky us. But, he warned, you don't win wars by doing this. Then a year later in Crete, he did it again, the the evacuation. And when he sent troops to Greece to fight Mussolini, uh, the Germans came in and beat the heck out of the British and they evacuated again it must have been at least three or four of these mini Dunkirks after Dunkirk. And this is a couple of years later. So it, it, one of my goals was to get the readers to understand how alone they really were for those two years. Mm. Even after the Americans came in, they were alone. Uh, the Eighth the Air Force didn't. Uh, drop a bomb in Germany until midsummer of 1942, seven months after Pearl Harbor. So it, it was a trying time, but Dunkirk. What he, the genius of what he did with Dunkirk, is he he turned a defeat into the, the British citizenry was marching around, you know, patting each other on the shoulder, happy, you know, the boys are home. We're going to lick those Germans. Right totally counterintuitive. And that was because of his pep talking and his inspiration. Uh, I I think if Chamberlain had still been prime minister, it would have been a somber day in England. And, uh, you know, Dunkirk would have been seen for what it was, the total humiliation of the British expeditionary force.
0: I was curious how the media reacted to his Dunkirk speech. Um, in 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 the sense of uh, did they say you know did reporters or journalists say well you know he's saying it this way but here are the facts or did they or did they you know I don't know buy into it if you will
1: well a lot of the uh, members of parliament who kept diaries uh, made allusions to in their diaries that you know Winston pulled a rabbit out of a hat and he turned what is obviously a disaster into a powerful incentive to keep fighting. Uh, although Churchill did say withdrawals, I'm not quoting them exactly, but mm-hmm. retreats do not lead to victory. Uh, the, the, the good news is the men are home, we can buy more guns and someday we'll go back and we will go back. Mm-hmm. The bad news is the men had to at times literally almost swim home. Yeah. And we we've been totally defeated. Uh, The British media, the electronic media, consisted of the BBC, which was a function of the government, Mm. Uh, so that left the the newspapers, and they were, as were ours, divided down political lines, Labour, Liberal Party, Communists, The Daily Worker, uh, The the London Times, and uh, for the most part, uh, they, they didn't... Take umbrage with what Churchill was saying because they were all in it together by then. Mm. Even the communists, although the communists for another year until Hitler invaded Russia, uh, the communists kept kind of a low profile because in the 1940, their hero Stalin, the communist hero, was in cahoots with Hitler. But uh, there was always someone naysaying or. Uh, something that Churchill said, political enemies, people in the press, the tabloids over there, uh, but the people responded.
0: What would be, who, was there a objective, uh, journalistic outlet at that point?
1: Oh, I think the London times, uh, you know, and, and, and the guardian and,
0: and, uh, and what, what were their reaction to that speech?
1: I don't, you know, I don't have...
0: You don't have that paper in front of you, Paul? No, I don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let me send my archivist down to the Yeah, base. Yeah, um, They, Their overall position was, uh, we're in this and and we're going to keep fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- there was the, the new movie...
0: You Dark mean, I'm sorry, they're, they're, the they're, the newspapers and kind of journalism overall was... Uh, on the side of you know helping Churchill and not dismissing the speech as a fallacy.
1: Oh, by early June, after he had been in office for a month and you know a week after Dunkirk was finished, yes, there there were those days in early May, at, right after he became prime minister, when, as in this new Gary Oldman movie, uh, mm-hmm. Darkest Hours, uh, Lord Halifax and even Chamberlain still wanted to do business with Hitler mm-hmm. uh, to negotiate a, a, a an understanding which hit, Churchill saw as a complete surrender and in, in the enslavement of Great Britain and that's what the movie is about and uh, and and he overruled if you will or convinced Halifax uh, to back off and that he Churchill was certainly not interested and by a month later, neither were the English people after Dunkirk. So, the the, the London Times, and of course, a lot of what uh, there was a lot of censorship. Uh, not because Churchill's government was tyrannical, but you you just can't broadcast how many men died at Dunkirk, how many got home, how many tanks were lost. So they they they, they couldn't report everything and they didn't know everything. Hmm. Which given that they 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 still they believed their government. Right. Talk about a different uh, generation.
0: Yeah. Huh. It's so interesting. Did you like the movie?
1: I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I've seen think... trailers and yeah. it it hasn't come down to the Blue Ridge Mountains yet. I've, everything I've read about it is positive and Yeah uh looking forward to it yeah have you seen it
0: yeah I thought it was I mean I think uh I think you'll really enjoy I I mean the performance is great if you're not a fan of or interested in in Churchill I don't know how much you'll get into it um it's almost like you really need to know a, a decent amount going you know beforehand um but and there's a few moments that I think you'll roll your eyes where they kind of do, you know, an aggregate, like a you know, the idea where Churchill would go out and
1: Oh, go into the subway?
0: Yeah, they do they do one scene where it's a bit over the top. Um where it's
1: Well he you know, I read a couple of reviews. The mm. purists I mean that's exactly where they're going to zing in on. Yeah, it wasn't historians. even.
0: Yeah, well, it was for me. I got that it was an aggregate. You know, we do these sorts of that. It was you know a combination. Right. It was. It just it go. It's you'll. I don't want it. Just it. I'm okay with that. It just kind of was like all right. Let's <laughs> like. It was a bit much.
1: Well, he see this takes place in May and early June. The, the yeah. movie, I guess. Yeah. And four months later. June, July, August, September, uh, the blitz began. That's when the 45,000 Londoners began dying. And
0: that's what I wish I almost had wished if anything, they had shown Churchill in the car, you know, I'm, I'm probably reading this from your book when he would, when he would go around in the car and bombs are dropping and he's getting out of the car and talking to people. Exactly. That would have been cool, but didn't really fit the timeline. And I was trying to think, well, Could they have done sort of, because they, they, they break time. They, they go future and time in the future at one moment because it wasn't anything like as you know, as, as cinematic as that, as that was, if that's where you were going.
1: Yeah. That, um, you know, if they want to stay true to May and early June, they can't do that. Right. He did do that with tears in his eyes over and over again. And, and the East Enders, the, Poorest Londoners would say, "When are we going to do the same thing to Germany?" And he would say, "You just wait. Yeah. We will just wait." And and uh, I mean, I have a bunch of quotes that were recorded of people saying, "There he is! There he is! Mm. You know, he's here. He's with us." <clears throat> so if the director wants to take that behavior and make and I think and put it in a scene in the in the subway uh, that hits his artistic discretion. Yeah. If, if Churchill had never gone out during the blitz and had said things like, let the people eat cake and, and then the director made up this scene. Well, that would just be an out and
0: out character lie. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Um, uh, I don't want, yeah. Um, let me know when you see it. Uh, I'll be, uh, quite curious. Um,
1: what? I mean, I, yeah. I uh, you know, I've heard of that scene and others, and it is—it's a movie. Um, you know, Casper Weinberger. This might sound like I'm going off script, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Casper Weinberger came out with a—I um, think it was Casper Weinberger—with an app, a game, Churchill Solitaire, about a year and a half ago. Uh better check whether it was Cap Weinberg or not. I'm checking. Uh, it, it could have been Dick Cheney. Um, <laughs> anyway.
3: <laughs> uh,
1: I didn't see that coming. And he, he's giving all the profits away to non-profit organizations and libraries, and, and it's this game of solitaire that uh, he was told that Churchill played. Mm-hmm. I don't think Churchill played a game of solitaire in his life. <laughs> so... Uh, the point being, he took artistic license, and he's giving the profits away for his solitaire game. But uh-huh. uh, it's based on on uh, nothing solid.
0: Donald but, Rumsfeld.
1: Okay. I, my apologies to Cheney and Kat Weinberger.
0: What do you think, uh, and maybe life is too complicated and layered and things aren't as black and white as we oftentimes think it it can be, uh, but as a Churchill biographer, historian, are there, you know, is there a, a top uh, mistake, uh, the uh, a mistake he made that kind of is above all all the others? Um, uh, whether it was before or after the war, earlier on in his life, you know, kind of the biggest blemish on his resume, if you will.
1: Well, if if you give credit where credit is due, whether it's uh, Lincoln not really performing well in the militia during some uprising out in western Illinois, or Churchill obviously had ambition, great ambition, and his peers in 1900, 1910, they saw that. Uh, so that you can, I think, pick and choose and find all sorts of mistakes he made um uh, the Dardanelles always comes up, people say Gallipoli, but that was the army invasion of the, the coast of the Dardanelles in Turkey. And that was Churchill's idea, and uh, it didn't work. And his motive was to take pressure off the trenchers in France, the slaughter there. And his logic was okay, the execution wasn't, and it cost him his job at the Admiralty. Um, but if you hold that up, uh, and say, therefore he's a failure, I I don't think you can go that far, um, because I'll hold up what he did in world war two.
0: No, sure. But it's saying, yeah, no, 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 of course
1: you holding, I mean, if a person says,
0: no, 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 yeah, no, but, but it's still, but it's, it's, but so that would that be, in terms of just, you know, chronicling or, or documenting, noting the, the great, not balancing them off of each other, just strictly what was his lowest career moment, uh, you would consider to be that? Well,
1: before he became prime minister, again, in early uh, 1940, he was a great enthusiast of the... British invasion of Norway at Narvik, which Norway was a neutral country and uh the the goal was to deny Germany Norwegian and ultimately Swedish iron ore and the British got there pretty much the same day the Germans did who had the same idea, so they were both invading a neutral country, and the Germans carried the day and sunk a british aircraft carrier and the british had to this was before dunkirk they had to do a before dunkirk retreat away from norway and that was the end of that and hitler held it for the rest of the war chamberlain took the rap for that mm. because chamberlain by then was taking the rap for everything mm. and he was the prime minister but churchill was uh the driving force behind it right So And then his generals knew he never overrode his generals. So that's one trait that offsets actual mistakes he made. Um, But he was always coming up with schemes. He wanted to go back to Norway for the rest of the war, and his generals had to uh, persuade him. Mm -hmm. But he allowed himself to be persuaded not to, whereas Hitler should have listened to his generals and didn't.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you, Paul. As always, this has been uh, great. Tremendously helpful.
1: Well, I hope so. And um, it's been a pleasure.
0: So again, thanks to Paul Reed. Uh, It really means a lot that he took the amount of time he did for all of my random questions. So that's it for this episode of What Really Happened. Uh, I think the final thought I'll leave on is I think people who have mental health um, conditions or, or issues or they, or they face uh, certain uphill battles a lot of times are in unique positions to be leaders. Uh, and I think Churchill is an example of that, whether or not we diagnose it as depression or not. I think people oftentimes who suffer from mental health issues uh, every day face problems that make them not want to get out of bed. And I'm not saying this is everyone. um, So I'm not casting a generalization, but when you have that sort of daily fight, uh, a lot of the other fights that you experience in life, uh, you feel like you can overcome because you're already overcoming something every day that is quite literally hampering you and trying to stop you from doing anything at all. Um, So you've, you've already gotten that far. And in a sense you, you won. And I guess I'm in a lot of ways talking about myself here, build a, build a weird ego where you think you really are capable of, of anything because you were able to muster up uh, the willpower to get over certain things that your mind is telling you, you are unable to do. So that is it. Uh, You can subscribe. Please subscribe to What Really Happened on Apple Podcasts. You can listen on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to your shows. This episode and our series is produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks, which I feel like I've said a million times in this episode. And next week... In our reaction episode to A Royal Legacy, which focused on Princess Diana and her passing and a lot of the conspiracy theories that existed, we have two incredible guests. One is Tina Brown, author of The Vanity Fair Diaries, The Diana Chronicles. Uh, Tina had lunch with Princess Diana, I think just a few weeks before her passing and has many opinions on the royal family. I also speak with The reporter who changed the monarch forever, that's what many say, Andrew Morton, author of Diana, Her True Story, In Her Own Words, the book that, as it was later revealed, Diana herself essentially co-wrote and became an international bestseller phenomena. Both are on next week's episode of What Really Happened.